you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 4 for the last time. 1 John chapter 4. And it's kind of a sad day. I love 1 John chapter 4. I've grown so much uh, personally as we've spent time here. 1 John chapter 4 is one of those passages of Scripture that if you read it rightly, you can't help but fall down on your face and beg for the mercy of God to grow in love and wisdom towards His church. We live in a time when there's a full frontal assault on the institutions that God has ordained, that of marriage and family, the church and even the government, uh, law and order. So the question is, for the Christian, what do we do? And I think that some would encourage Christians, well, our job in this day and age is to throw stones, to be angry and uh, obnoxious about the way that the gospel and the things of God have come under scrutiny. But John would encourage us to rejoice in the fellowship of the church and rejoice in the gifts that God has given, to rejoice in the relationships of marriage and the relationships inside the family and inside the church. He would say, don't be discouraged in how the world rages under the power of the evil one against all good. Rest in the sovereign one who has blessed us in the beloved. I think that's what he would say. I think that's what he is saying. So if you would stand with that in mind as we read this passage again. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if we... If God so loved us, we, ought, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And here are our verses today. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has... Let me do verse 20 over again. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And finally, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. This is God's Word to us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence today asking that You would mold us afresh and anew, that we would rest not in our own trivial understanding, but that we might rest in Your Word. That we might let it rebuke us and correct our thinking about the salvation that you have given us and how we are to live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Jesus, having begun in the seventh, seventh verse uh, and, and coming all the way here to these passages we're dealing with today, summarizes all of his teaching on the love that we should have inside the body of Christ. He wants us to understand 
that loving the body of Christ is not something that we work at at maybe some point in our Christian life, but it is something that is a natural outflow of what God has done in our lives. It's not something we put up on the shelf and we say maybe one day we will be people who will love the body. That's not the picture that John gives here. He gives a picture of the reality that if we are in fact believers, that inevitably we will love the church of the living God. Over and over and over. I want you to have wisdom in this encouragement. But I also want you to have boldness. If someone tells you that they are a Christian, that they don't need the body, take them through 1 John chapter 4. Maybe do it a little quicker than I have. Um, if, they give you, if they're as kind as this congregation is and they'll give you weeks, go for it. Um, but, 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 but point to the reality of what John says here because it refutes the modern understanding that we can be an island unto ourselves. It, it pushes us to be part of a healthy church. You know, one of the things that this passage has really pressed into my heart is if all of these things are true about loving the body, and they are, then it is also equally true that we build the, the, the church of God around the things of God because I've known so many people in our generation who have left the church not because um, of overt theological issues, although that does come, but often because the church modern packs in things that the Bible never says we are to do. And so people get disenchanted and they leave the gathering of the saints because what's going on on Sunday morning, in fact, has nothing to do with being centered on God. So important that we're God-centered first because that is why the church gathers. That is why we come together. So the first thing, and there are four things, four propositions here that John gives, summarizes in these last verses that really is the anchor, the, the rooting of all of his teaching. He begins with a great test of our faith. He says, we love because he first loved us. This is a grand heralding of the gospel. There, there's been several times throughout this passage where John has just laid down in one verse an explanation of the gospel. That Jesus was sent to be the propitiation of our sins and on and on. And here is another one of them. An encapsulation of what the Gospel is. We are loved in Christ prior to anything that we did, thought, or could do. Verse 10 kind of aims in the same direction. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. We are incapable of loving in a way that calls God to love us without God first just pouring His love out upon us. And, and that's what John has concluded here. Friends, this morning, we would have nothing to celebrate, nothing to rejoice in, Nothing to comfort us in this world that is in the power of the evil one without the reality of the eternal, self-existent love of God. It's why it's important that we understand this correctly. We don't rejoice in our own ability to love. We don't rejoice in our loveliness, our ability to be loved. We don't rejoice in our own righteousness because in the sight of God, all of these things are lacking. And yet, the fact that we're not lovable and we're not righteous in our own strength, by our own merits, and that we don't love others well never confounded the love of Almighty God. In fact, it is in that case of being totally lost, God demonstrated His great love above 
the individual recipient of salvation. Romans chapter 5, you'll remember Paul's encouragement. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We must, once and forever, rid our minds of the idea that God loved us as a response to anything that we have done. Mark it down. When your brain starts thinking, well, I did this, so God must be just elated that I am such a a wonderful piece of work that He can set His love upon. That is damnable thinking. God has not set His love upon you because of anything you did. God has not saved you in response to anything that has ever happened in your life. God has saved you and loved you in spite of you. And that's the joy that we sing for this morning. It's not because of us, it's in spite of us that we are loved. Apart from the love of God, we have no hope. Do you know why we don't value the gospel? Do you know why there are some of us who can come into this sanctuary week in and week out and not raise our voices to the Lord giving thanks for the blood that was shed on our behalf? Do you know why we can be so tepid and foolish to come in here and critique? Mm. Instead of just giving praise? Because we have forgotten who we are apart from the grace of Almighty God. We are not lovely people. We were dead and vile, worthy of being placed in the hands of Satan. In fact, we were in the hands of Satan. A kind of Christian theology that ignores the reality of our depraved state before God sovereignly saving us is anathema to Scripture. God was moved in love towards us by only one thing. And that is His sovereign will to love. His own everlasting love is the only reason why you or I find ourselves in the mercies of God this morning. And without that understanding, we will never love and express love in the way that we ought in Christ. The love of God is self-generated, self-motivated, self-created. It is one-sided in its redemptive purpose in our life. That brings me to critique a type of conversation that goes on in the church all the time. And that kind of thinking would come to verse 19 and read that we love because He first loved us, and say, well, ultimately, there is this insinuation that God loves us in spite of us. And that's all that needs to be understood. But that, in fact, is to to miss the entire point of verse 19. The aim of verse 19 is that God has loved you for a purpose. And it's not so that an evangelist can rack up a bigger number on his prayer letter. It's not for a body count. I am convinced that evangelical America has gone down this wrong path of thinking that we are successful when we can say, well, X number of people decided in a particular direction. Listen to what comes after that in a thousand different forms. X number of people made these decisions. Look at what we've done. That should bring us to tears. Because it is a misrepresentation of the love of Almighty God. 
Anytime a sinner flees to Christ for redemption, it is not look what the congregation has done. It's not look what the missionaries have done. It's not look at the pastor. It is look to Christ. And the outcome is not just, well, that individual escaped hell. Period. That's all we need to worry about. The outcome of the redemption of the Spirit in the life of a dead sinner that has been brought to new life is that that individual will become an individual whose life is marked by love. The love of God moves us in the direction, as it were, of mirroring Christ's love. God has not merely loved us in order that we might be forgiven, or saved from hell, but that we would display His gracious character. God intends to make us a people who are genuinely loving. I think far too often what we do is we hijack the world's definitions of love. We cram them into the text and we go on about our lives never really being molded by what God has done. Never being moved by the reality that, friends, you and I we're on our way to hell justly. God justly could send every one of us to hell apart from His Son. And would. That would be the right thing to do. And you, you say, but, but I'm a pretty moral person. I, I, I'm a, I do good things. I give a lot of my time. Apart from Christ, you do it all for you. For your own glory. For your own purposes. And even your motives are worthy of God's wrath. All through the Gospels, though, we see a different man. We see Christ living a life of love, of kindness and compassion and tenderness. I don't mean to jump into a controversy, but I think most of you who know me know that I also really don't... My ministry has been marked by those kinds of things. Recently, there was a, a book published that devotionally aims at the, the gentle and lowly attributes of our Savior. And there's an entire group of people that immediately went on the attack against this book. Do you know why I think they did that? Because they have a version of Christianity in some of their circles that lacks kindness and compassion and mercy and love. They don't like to be called out for it. The reality is that our Savior is gentle and lowly. That He has dealt with us kindly. Now that's not the full expression of who He is. That's not all that could be said of Christ. He is coming back, uh, conquering sin and death, and He is our great warrior as well. The, the Scriptures speak to this reality. But friends, the one that we follow is not... I don't think that I'm going to be accused of being theologically light in my lifetime. I hope I'm not. I mean that with humility. But our Savior is not some heady guy that couldn't care less about those around Him. He's fully God, fully man, and He genuinely showed mercy and compassion to those around Him. One of the oddest animals in creation is this kind of Christian who has all of his theological ducks in a row but could care less about his neighbor who has nothing to eat. Now, some of you are going to immediately hear that and say, well, that sounds a lot like liberalism. I promise you, I'm not telling you you have to feed your neighbor so that you can be saved. I think the first part of this sermon totally undoes liberalism. Now, our salvation is by mercy alone, and we don't feed an individual so that God would be pleased with us. But in fact, our love is demonstrated towards people because we have been so nourished and fed in Christ. Because it is our joy to give everything in our lives and of our substance in love towards those who may never be able to repay 
us. In fact, when I say it's the oddest animal in all of creation, a Christian that doesn't love his neighbor, it turns out that it's an animal much like Sasquatch that exists only in fiction. I don't know if some of you leave and go down the road that's right over here. Is that Avenue D, I think? And as you turn to, to go or you go across the street, you will see on the side of the house somebody has this big metal cutout of Sasquatch. I love it. Cracks me up. The first time that I saw it, I was going across the road and just went, I almost hit somebody. But what John is saying here is that here is the test in verse 19. If he has loved you, if he has placed his sovereign love on you and redeemed you, in some form or fashion, you will continue to grow in love throughout your lifetime. Do you do it well? No. And can we, can we again come back to the reality that here in John chapter 4, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought. The ought sets us free here. The reality is we don't love the way that we should. But John then goes on to say, but if He has set His love upon you, you will continue to grow in that kind of of Christ-centered love. And you know why you love other people? Not because anyone would ever look at you and go, man, Brian, you are the most loving guy. I mean, just a, I mean, he's like a teddy bear. Apart from Christ, that's not true. The only reason why we love is because Christ has loved us first and in our love towards the brothers in the body of Christ, the only one that can receive glory is Christ Himself. Because in our essence, we would not be loving. So then, John goes on to a case study in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Here is a person who says, I love God. I'm growing in the Lord. I watched last night a, um, I watch goofy things on YouTube, um, video of Tammy Faye Baker and Jim Baker from 1987. This interview where they are talking about how God loves everyone and all of this sentimental silliness. And the reality is, in the, if you know that scandal, and I probably shouldn't have even brought it up, but if you know that whole reality, those people love themselves. That they were people that say, I love God. They had an entire establishment. I wouldn't call it a ministry. Uh, and they would say, I'm growing in God. I, I know Him. Do you love your brother? Does that come out in the way that you respond to those around you? And so many people are so self-deluded that they can say, I love God I just don't love people. This verse says, John says, that the only right and just conclusion that we can come to is to deduce that that person is a liar. And it's just common sense. It's just the reality. Now there are two issues that are raised in the face of this case study. An individual who says, I can love God, but I don't love other people in the body of Christ. That, that individual is, is a liar. But two issues are, are, are raised immediately. One, we tend to be people who think that loving God is easier than loving people. Men are sinful and flawed. So are women. So are children. But God has no flaw. So it, it just stands to reason in our fallen thinking that there are no hindrances in loving God. And so some would come to this and say, well, it's, it's put in the wrong order. It should be flipped. Because ultimately, loving God is easier than loving people. Then there is also the biblical apparent, biblical inconsistency that is raised in light of verse uh, 20. 
Because do you remember what Jesus said when he was asked what the greatest commandment was? In Matthew chapter 22, he responds that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. Again, these two verses seem to be in some sort of uh, contradiction, or that is what is, is at least uh, offered that the order is wrong. Again, that we, must, that we must love God first is a reality so that we can love our neighbor. But this seemingly, the indictment against this verse is, well, is John saying that we have to love our neighbor before we can love God? Well, here are the solutions. One, John does not teach that we, are, we start by loving our fellow man and then advance to loving God. He's not saying that you love God in a liberal worldview by fixing everything with your neighbor. Friends, that's what's been perpetrated. If you, some of y'all are angry at a political party and I just want you to wake up and realize you should be angry at really bad theologians. The political parties just are like sponges. They soak up the garbage that is out there. And the reality is our country has been filled with liberal theology for generations that say God will only be loved as you first love your neighbor perfectly. So let us hijack your wallet and come up with a thousand social platforms and and systems that everybody will have the same things and that is what love is. That's a lie. And it's not what this verse teaches. John is not saying that the way to love God is through loving our neighbor. John is saying if someone says that he loves God yet does not love his brother, it's a case study. He is a liar. Why? Because we love because he first loved us. Because out of the love that God has shown to us, we will begin to have compassion and mercy and kindness towards those who are in the body. What is at heart here is there is no separation really between the first and second commandment. I've said this uh, in previous weeks. Now, our loving God is first and primary. We can't love our neighbor without loving God, without submitting our lives, and we'll get to this in a minute, under His command. But if we do love God, then you know what the first thing that God requires of us that we love our neighbor you see what john is doing here is he is being practical and we can't come to these verses and fall asleep about what the context of his writing is remember he's writing in response to the gnostic heresy that is a form of mysticism that has crept in And these Gnostics would say that love and and mysticism in our day and age, and I'm not going to put, you know, bumper sticker labels of of entire groups of people, but this, this word mysticism really encapsulates a way of life by which we lead with our feelings first. How do we feel about something? And and, and mysticism in its different forms and fashions inside the Christian church is a type of faith that is expressed mostly by feeling. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to be misunderstood. In the gospel, the genuine gospel, the gospel where God sets His love upon His people for His own glory and redeems them apart from anything in them, feelings follow. But feelings are not the barometer of all things. There's a distinction. And mysticism would say, no, no. If it's gospel, if it is right, then I must feel right about it. There's also in mysticism this inherent tendency to go past Christ straight to God. There's also a higher knowledge And if you don't think that there's a higher knowledge prevalent in our society, a type of Gnosticism inherent, you are foolish. The second, listen, if I walk out these doors and to our community say we should all love one another, you know what the next thing I have to do is? I have to define what love is. And do you know that the second that your pastor begins to define love according to the Word of God, do you know what the world's going to do? Oh, 
That guy is so old-fashioned. We have a greater enlightenment about what love is. We have a higher knowledge about what it really means to love our neighbor. What is that? It's just mysticism. It's Gnostic tendency in our age. Friends, there's also this tendency in mysticism to concoct stories where the, the end aim of the story is not on Christ himself, but on me, the storyteller. Now, I, I want to be careful with this because I do believe that <clears throat> we share our testimonies and what the Lord has really done in our lives, and, and, and that's a good thing, that's a biblical thing to do, that we give witness to the glorious and miraculous things that God has done, and we are supernaturalists. We, we do believe that God does supernatural things. But we live in a time where there are entire cottage industries around things like 90 minutes in heaven. And you know, all that is, is mysticism and Gnosticism, in my view, um, humbly. It's a look at my story. Can I, can I tell you something? I, I think if I want doctrinal footing for anything about heaven, do you know where we can find that? In the Word. Revelation, read that through and then go read 90 Minutes in Heaven. And I love starting fires in the fall, so I'll take your book after you're done because you'll realize it's worthless. And I mean that with all kindness. Why do I bring that up? Because it is not loving to lie about who God is. It is hateful. It doesn't matter how emotionally pleasing it is. It doesn't matter how sentimental and all of those things are. It just doesn't matter if, if it's not true. And I, I find that the, the, the inconsistencies are, are really at heart here when you listen to so much of the, the modern fodder that's perpetrated against the church that is feeling first, I can go straight to God, marginalizes Christ, or has a higher knowledge. Mysticism also has this tendency to say, look, I, look at me and how spiritual I am and look at these spiritual experiences I have. You know what those things do not connect to? How I love and relate to the body. Now we all have subjective experiences and I, I don't want to be heard as, as robbing those things and I, I struggle to speak in a way that is ultimately definitive. I think the Bible is definitive, but I think we can have some different opinions and views on what those experiences might be. But there should be a relating to one another in the church where we first and primarily agree on this. If we are saved, it is because God has done it. End of story. There's a lot of side conversation that can happen from there, but, but we have to start there. And so, uh, to, to move on from there, that's the, the theological conundrum, the background, mysticism, Gnosticism, a kind of self-centered Christianity which I think is alive and well in our day. And you know what that issue's out in? If my mystical feelings and tendencies and experiences are large, do you know what's going to be small? Obedience. Living under the authority of the Word of God becomes smaller. It becomes trite. It becomes trivial. But the reality is that you cannot love God without obeying Him. You cannot follow the Lord honestly and say, I hate my brother, but Lord, I love you. And remember what Jesus says in John chapter 14? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loves me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's Jesus' constant refrain. Or look at verse 2 in chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Some of you have probably taken it on the chin. I know I have as we've walked through 1 John chapter 4. And maybe some of your joy because you realize you don't love the body the way that you ought. Glory be to Christ that that's been revealed to you. 
Uh, here is how you ultimately grow in joy inside the body. Obey the Lord by loving the body. You can't see God. You can see the body. And so, not in your own strength, but in light of the reality that God has set His love upon you, begin to serve and love those around you. You know, the most discontented hearts in the church are always those who are idle in loving the body. Often we forget that there is so much love that has been lavished on us and we just want this zap kind of... We, we half, tendence, half of our tendency is to believe in a Zeus kind of metaphor with the Lord Jesus Christ that He's just going to zap us and we are all of a sudden going to have all of this joy. But part of what I think that, that this teaches is that our joy is wrapped up in serving the body. Now, some of you, that doesn't mean serving physically. It means praying continually for different members in the congregation. It, it can mean a thousand different things. The question is, is your heart engaged in loving fellow believers? And I believe that's both inside this local church and outside this local church. Do we genuinely pour out our lives in a way that we love the saints of God? If the answer is no, then my encouragement to you is run in that direction. If the answer is yes, there should be much joy because the only reason that you would ever love those who are part of the body of Christ is that you have first been loved in Christ. And so we come to the, the third thing here that John deals with, and that is a, a command remembered. There first was this test, we love because He first loved us. Then there's this case study, uh, love for God is ultimately proven by the way that we love other people. And then John seemingly comes here to verse the, the, the final verse, and he goes, and by the way, that reminds me. The reality that this is the test and here is the case study reminds me that, friends, all of that is rooted in the commandments of God. And this commandment we have from Him, John says, whoever loves God must also love his brothers. The, the Ten Commandments bear this out. The first table of the law is about our love and worship for God. And that's what Jesus is aiming at in his statement in, in Matthew. And the second tablet of the law is aimed at our love for our neighbor. Caring for them in particular unique ways. And here is what is, I want you to see in that. People, this is nuts. But this is the modern church movement. All of that Old Testament stuff, ugh. boy, that'll put you to sleep. And that God wasn't loving at all. All of those definitions and thou shalt not. But boy, Jesus shows up and he's full of love. Let me tell you what that is. That is a culture who says we're going to define love apart from the commands of God. And what happens is it's not really love at all. All of the commands of God are God saying, I love my church and my people enough not to say, hey, go love your neighbor and then leave that open-ended. What does that mean? It's defined biblically by God's truth. And so here we have this reminder, whether or not we like it, when you hear the commandment, you must love your brother. Does that make you go, yes! Or does that make you go, man, do you know him? Like Sarah probably goes, whoo, this definitely was written pre-J. But it wasn't. It was written by the Spirit of Almighty God who knew all of our faults and failures. And so the reality is this, and I don't mean this in an unkind way, it doesn't matter how we feel about the command. One of the, the things that I think people don't see is that mysticism shackles us. If it's truly mysticism, it, it binds us to a different law, a, 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 a feeling-driven, self-centered way of living life. But the Word of God sets us free to live apart from our feelings. Now, I, 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 I know that there's going to be some questions about, but shouldn't we feel affection and love? Yes, but I think often what happens, and this is just what I've experienced, 
Often the obedience is preceded by or is succeeded by the, the, the right feelings. Often it is obey first, do the work of actually loving people, and then you will feel in your heart right about it. Now, I'm not suggesting a type of legalism there, but I do believe the reality is love is not, never has been, a feeling first. We must move in the direction of people because God has commanded us. We must be reminded that that the explanation of love that John has given in verse 9 is not, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. He felt a certain way. It's not what verse 9 says. In this, the love of God was made manifest us, uh, amongst us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. God acted. And some people will want to say, yeah, but in His eternal decrees before the foundation of the world, He had set His le-. All of that's true. But when, when, when God moves, it's different. from We're, we're not one-to-one the same. So all of that to say we should always move in the direction of obeying. Not the smallest bit of obedience for the glory of Christ is trivial. Immediately, someone's going to again raise this, well, isn't it ridiculous to tell us to love when, when we're all over the place with our feelings? Again, that's a misconception of what love is. Love is ultimately not then governed by our affections. Love is governed by the Word of God. Not our will, but our Father's will. Not what we feel is right, but what He says is right. Do you know what one of the greatest lies in our generation is? And it's being, if you have children in the public school system, I guarantee you they're being inundated with this. Love is love. We were in a place recently where there's people that have yard signs. I don't think West Texans have enough guts to put this if this is their worldview. Uh, but there's these black signs that say, love is love, certain lives matter, on and on. And I'm not being political here. It's just a, a worldview. And what's funny is if I were to go knock on the door of an individual like that and say, is it okay to have a confessional statement where we assert what we believe? Is it okay to have the Ten Commandments on the courthouse square? Is it okay to have something that expresses big truth? They would say, absolutely not. But then they would put their yard sign in that is a confessional statement. Love is love. And do you know what that, that really means? It means that whatever I feel is love is love. If I love uh, an individual of the same gender in an erotic way, that is love. And you can't tell me that's wrong. You're right, I can't. But God can. And at the end of the day, and I don't mean this unkindly to anybody that, that has that worldview, this is His world. And He gets to define what is loving and unloving. And you know what your feelings have to bear on the reality of what He has said? Nothing. It is God and God alone in the truth of His Word that gets to declare what love is. Here is why, then, if you look throughout church history, The tendency inside the church on a Sunday morning is not to talk about our feelings in isolation, although, like I said, feelings come for gospel-believing people, for born-again believers. We do have affections. We do have feelings. But those feelings are regulated by the truth. And so you know what men were about on Sunday morning? Proclaiming the truth, the Word of God, helping to discern truth from error. Do you know what the slogan of the modern church is? What difference does theology make? Uh, That statement, when someone says it doesn't matter what, what, what your theology is, you're admitting you might as well go in the love is love direction. You might as well just be subjective in all things. But in fact, theology does matter. And I want to shamelessly just plug, out in the lobby, there are these, Stephen Lawson has written these um, long line of godly men books. This one is on the mighty weakness of John Knox. What an interesting title. Uh, But all of these books are written 
with a particular man in view that God has used throughout church history. And I want to encourage you to read those things. And the reason I want you to read them isn't just so you're brainy, but what you will see is the way that men really laid their lives down for the truth of the gospel and for the flourishing of the church. Friends, the reality is the Bible alone has the voice and right authority to speak to human flourishing and what is good and what is right in our society. Love is not love unless God says it's love. And so we should move in that direction. We should seek to live our lives in a way that would bring glory to God. You see, our culture tends to have this way of thinking that says, you know, the only way you can love me is if you tell me I'm okay. In the cultural norm, the cultural view is love means to affirm what I feel in this moment. But in the face of Jesus Christ as Christians, what we understand is that love came down from heaven, looked us straight in the eye, and said, you brood of vipers. You're not okay. You're damned and you are weak apart from me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, the glory of that statement is that we're not okay. Brian, we're not okay. And I'm not saying we're not just a little bit messed up. We are absolutely hopeless. Except for the reality that Jesus has condescended to be our wrath-bearing sacrifice in spite of who we are. And so the joy is, as we abide in Christ and we rejoice in His Word and we live under the authority of what He says love is, we will have fellowship with Him and we will begin to flourish with our neighbor. We will begin to live lives that absolutely have been infused with joy. So finally, there's this parting reminder. We have the test and then we have the case study. We have a reminder there are commandments. There are imperatives in Scripture. And friends, I just tell you, in the church today, this is, the the ongoing thing is we come to a commandment, we come to an imperative, we come to something that God says, love your neighbor. And we do the very same things that the Pharisees did. We will start to pare down, well, what does that really mean? Who's my neighbor? How about my neighbor is just the group of people that I like? Or how about love just means doing what I think is... No. We live under the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and that is not legalism. People cry legalism all the time. But I promise you in the church today, for every one bona fide legalist that you can find, there are ten antinomians who want to ignore and abrogate the reality... That the Bible in the New Testament is replete with imperative encouragement. You have been loved in Christ. It makes no sense that you would not love your neighbor. At least growing in that direction. Not that we do it perfectly or not that we do it for our salvation. So there's this test. Then there's a case study. Then there is... um, a a reminder of the imperative, and finally there is this parting reminder in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, uh, and everyone who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of Him. John stops at the end of his explanation about loving the body, and he says... In essence, true Christians are people who have been made partakers of the divine nature. Remember, we love because He first loved us. It is His love that preempts anything in us religiously. We are saved not by our profession, not by our prayers, not by our morality, not by anything in us. We are saved only because of the will of God. We have been born again, he says here. We have been born of God. In 5.19, again, we are of God. We have, been, we have been birthed out of God's divine kindness in regenerating us. 
We've not just, Christians are not people who just decide to become Christians and then do certain good things after it. That's not what a Christian is. A Christian is an individual who was dead in his trespasses and sins and by the work of the Spirit of Almighty God has been made alive unto Christ. God has worked in our souls by His Holy Spirit an absolutely new nature. You might have been born a Clatworthy or a Smith or a Kendrick or whatever your family is in the natural sense, but if you are a part of the church of Almighty God, it is because God birthed you anew. By His grace alone. And so it stands to reason that if we are in Christ, that we will also love all of those that God has begotten in this world, that God has birthed anew into the church. We love because we realize that inside the body there, are, there is a new family, that this is my family. For a long time, I said I had to come to West Texas and I had to leave my family. Ten years in, I say, no, this is my family. They're just, just as messed up as my other one. <laughs> but by the grace of God, these are my people. And they're not my people by the DNA of my birth parents. They are my people by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom all things were created on heaven and earth. That's the reality of being a part of the body of Christ. The, the Gospel, you know, when you look in the New Testament and you hear Jesus saying, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And He goes on to say that families will be divided. Children against parents and, and, and so on and so forth. There seemingly, we look at that and we go, oh, that's sad. It would be sad if it didn't have a trajectory. And the reality is the trajectory is though... Natural families will be divided. The true family of God will be brought together and bound by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the joy that we have this morning. And it's why when people go, do I really need to be a member of a church? Well, I don't know. Do you really need a family? Are you all sufficient in and of yourself? Can you live the Christian life and see all of your blind spots and, and, and just do life as a Christian without anyone else? The answer is no. You were born again into the body of Christ and you matter to be uh, united with those people. And here's the, the truth. Not just once when you place your membership and then show up when you get married and then later when you get buried. One of the saddest things I have to do as a pastor is hear people come into my office and say, my husband died. I'm so sorry. Well, he was a member of this church for 30 years. Oh. And then I have to go quietly say, do I know this person? And other people go, no. Friends, we need the body. We need to serve and love and lay our feelings down and rejoice in, in what God has given us here. Once we realize what God has given us in the body, we begin to love out of that. And again, this isn't just liking people in the body. It's genuinely loving them. It's it's doing what is best for others. It's building a life that says, my feelings come last. The glory of God comes first. It's amazing that He saved me in spite of me. And it's just as amazing that He saved everyone else in this room. And so I'm going to live my life not according to the dictates of how I feel in this moment, but according to the Word of God. Maybe the best way that we can know whether or not we love others. Because some of you might wonder, do I, do I love people well? I think these two things again are connected. And, and they're not to be separated. And so you can pose the question, do you really love the Lord? Do you really enjoy fellowship with God? Do you really know that God is your Father? Are, are you enjoying communion with Him? It, it's not going to be very successful to seek to love your neighbor, to love those in the body of Christ if you really don't love 
the living God if you can't rejoice in the work that He has done. So many people will argue against, will know God loves me because I decided to follow Him. And you can believe that theology. I won't hate you for it, but I promise you this, it'll come out in the way that you love this church. Because you'll demand that they do certain things before you love them. You'll condition everything on human action and not on the sovereign kindness of God. You see, not even the Apostle John here had a view of living the Christian life apart from the church, and that includes you. This letter was written to you and I. It's intended to bear impact in our lives. How many of you met the Apostle John? Any of you older people in here ever spend some time? Charlie Hall? No? Okay. The the reality is this. We began in chapter 1 with the purpose statement of this letter. And for John, it was that your joy would be complete in being part of the body of the redeemed. Remember what he wrote. That which was from the beginning. He's laying Jesus before us. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, that's what we proclaim to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things. Why? So that our joy may be complete. The aim of this letter is love inside the body so that in a world that is in the power of the evil one, we would have fellowship and joy with one another. The only way we have fellowship and joy with one another is by putting Christ at the center of all things. Some of you find it difficult to love people in this body. And, and when I say some of you, I'm one of the some of you. There are times where it's difficult to love in the body, is it not? But I can tell you when I assess every time that I'm struggling to love, do you know who has been placed at the center of the equation? Me. When we place our Lord Jesus Christ in what He has sovereignly and kindly done in redeeming us out of the grasp of the evil one, oh friend, all of the obstacles to loving one another seem to vanish in a second. When we realize that His love towards us is the only reason for our salvation, then there is no limit of how far our love can go in the body. Of course, it doesn't exceed the truth of His Word, but it will submit itself completely to the Word. Do you see what we have here is an explanation again of a of, of a test of what has, has brought us to Christ and this case study and, and this reminder that there's a commandment. That there is the remember to love God means to love your neighbor. And that is because God has commanded it. And then bookending uh, those two statements are these grand explanations that salvation is of God alone. Here's my point the one thing I want you to take away. The reason why the true church of the living God, the the real church that God is miraculously bringing out of the dirt, and, and the true church of people who have been redeemed by the Spirit of Almighty God, the true church is marked by knowing that salvation comes from Him alone. And apart from that one truth, The church never is loving in the way that God commands us here. Ever. It's not a reality. So it's of first importance that we understand that we are saved not by works, not by our activities, not by our ability to love, but we are saved by grace alone to the glory of God alone. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning acknowledging the reality that we don't love as we ought. Acknowledging the reality that we're given to accepting definitions of love that Satan has built up in the world. Acknowledging the reality that, quite frankly, sometimes in our religious hardness, we lack compassion and grace. But, oh, Father, 
We come before you today knowing that you have never lacked for love or mercy or grace or compassion. And so we ask that you would pour it out in our hearts, that we would be reminded of what Christ has done to drag us away from our idolatry and our filth and our rebellion. Pray, Father, that we as a people would be rooted and grounded in your word, knowing that salvation comes from your hand alone and from decisionism, not from man-centered religious ideologies, but by grace alone. And I pray, Father, that we would grow to be people who love by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. In Jesus' name.